I'm Kim Raycon, Marketing Associate for Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Sarah Perry. Sarah Perry makes her American debut with her novel The Essex Serpent, an historical novel set in late 19th century England. It tells the story of an intellectually minded young widow, Cora Seaburn, a pious vicar, Will Ransom, and a rumored mythical serpent that stems from a Restoration era pamphlet. The Essex Serpent explores questions about science and religion, skepticism and faith, independence and love. First published in the United Kingdom, The Essex Serpent is the winner of the British Book Awards Fiction Book of the Year and Overall Book of the Year. It was selected as the Waterstones Book of the Year and was a 2016 Costa Book Award finalist. The Essex Serpent is available now in hardcover from our imprint Custom House. Today on the phone we have with us Sarah Perry, author of The Essex Serpent. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. One of the things that I love most about The Essex Serpent is actually the story behind how you got the idea for the novel. So mm. for people who haven't heard it yet, how did a ride in the car with your husband turn into learning about the 1669 pamphlet, The Flying Serpent, or Strange <laughs> News Out of Essex? So um, my husband and I are both from Essex, and uh, he'd been reading this really old book uh, from the, well, not very old, just from the 30s, um, called Companion into Essex by Herbert W. Tompkins. And he had read about how serpents and strange beasts had been seen in various places in Essex um, over the sort of last few hundred years. And the most famous one was the serpent seen at Henham on the Mount. And we happened to be driving past the village, and Robert said, oh, Helen on the Mount. Um, and I said, yes. And he said, have you heard of the Essex Serpent? And I hadn't. So he told me all about it and how it was seen in 1669 and how they were so convinced it was real that they produced this amazing pamphlet with a woodcut illustration called Strange News Out of Essex. Uh, and um, it just sort of sparked off my imagination and I immediately said what if it came back and what if it came back at a time when you know Darwin's ideas and an interest in natural history and geology was really at the forefront so within about 45 minutes I think I had the plot of the novel (laughs) it was quite quick it was was quite quick but and one of the things that I also really enjoyed about the book itself is how you took something that you know, a document that came out of the Restoration and moved it up to the to the late Victorian period mm. created a world, a Victorian world that really doesn't look so unfamiliar or so dated to us because we're we're still having some of the same problems then mm. that uh, or today that they had then. Um, so why was it important for you to move the serpent to the late Victorian world to sort of interact with the ideas of? Darwin, but also make that world something accessible and approachable to the 21st century reader? So there's a number of reasons 
why I chose to do this. Firstly, and, and this is um, quite a sort of um, mercenary approach, is that I happen to be very, very, very interested in the conflict between faith and reason and science and superstition. I always have been, and it seemed to me to be a device on which I could hang this stuff that has interested me so much for so long. And placing it at the end of the 19th century, where I could immediately conjure up a cast of characters who would include religious people, people who were followers of Darwin, people who were still mired in the kind of superstitions that you would associate with the century before. It just seemed to me to be very exciting in a way of me having a, a, an exciting narrative that also interested me personally and, and enabled me to sort of ride my hobby horses a little bit further. But there's something else, which is this. I wanted to invert and interrogate some of our ideas about what the Victorian age was like. Right. Now, one thing is that we forget how long the Victorian age was. Mm -hmm. So 1850 to 1895 is a similar span from, say, the 1930s to the 1980s. And if you think about how much culture and clothing changed during that period, you can see kind of how long the Victorian age was. Mm -hmm. So by the end of the 19th century, we had electric lights, the London Underground had been running for 30 years, you would have a tooth taken out under general anaesthetic, women were very active in um, politics and in the sciences and in maths and outside the home. Um, you know, it really was, in many respects, a modern age. Um, I'm only 37, but my great-grandparents were Victorians because they were born in the Victorian age. So I wanted to not have you know, carriages and pea supers and street urchins and top hats, but to, to write a version of the Victorian age that seems more like the way we live now, which is also very similar to the way they lived then. The first two pages of the novel, for me, spoke a very kind of Dickensian narrative in, in thinking about time, but then it, it doesn't it doesn't sort of fall into that kind of what we sort of maybe have popularized as kind of a, a Dickensian kind of Victoriana, um, as a kind yeah. of sort of dress-up world that you can walk walk yourself through. Yes, yeah. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> that's what I wanted. You know, if you if you write Victorian, if you write historical fiction that's set in the nineteenth century, as a reader, you will of course be very very aware of intertextuality and of your influences. So you'll be aware of George Eliot writing with her big social conscience, mm -hmm. and you'll be aware of Dickens writing with this sort of uh, omniscient narrator who has a bee in his bonnet about various things. You will be aware of of, of all of that, and so it's impossible to write completely divorced from that and to kind of reject it consciously. But what I wanted to do was to inhabit that space, inhabit some of the conventions and some of the wonderful stuff around 19th century fiction, but to, to wrong foot the reader by saying you think you're reading something Dickensian, but, you know, um, here's a woman talking about using a camera and here's someone using the tube. Right, and there's Martha who just sort of comes out with her socialism in, in the novel right. as well. She's, she's very unabashed about her political leanings and social leanings. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which many, many women were. So um, while I was researching, I, I sort of 
was really delighted about some of the stuff I came across. And um, for example, there's a very famous strike that happened at the Bryant and May Match Factory in 1888. And uh, all the match girls working at this match factory um, had something called Fossy Jaw, which was a terrible, terrible kind of cancerous injury caused by using phosphorus in making matches. And these girls were basically, you know, they would have been more or less illiterate, but they had their own mind and they knew that this was wrong. And they had listened to speeches by the social reformer Annie Besant and they went on organised industrial action and they caused one of the most significant changes in the labour laws and in health and safety in, in England, in, you know, towards the end of the 19th century. Now, I didn't sort of invent the idea that a working class woman could be interested in socialism and in workers' rights. This is very much based on on real women, on real Victorian women. So I found it really exciting, actually, and um, you know, fell in love with lots of the women that I read about. That was one of the things that, that I liked a lot, too, about Martha's character, was that she was, she was very willing to, to speak her mind and to, and to not be afraid, uh, really, of convention. And that was, and I think that's one of the ways in which, you know, in some ways her character wrong foots the reader in terms of their expectation. Yes. I'd like to go back to something you said a bit earlier about faith versus reason. And I think in the Essex Serpent, for me, it's it's faith versus reason, but also fear versus reason. And fear, fear in the Essex Serpent manifests itself maybe most obviously in the idea of the serpents. Um, and how how the inhabitants of Altmanter respond to it and think about the serpent. Uh, but there's also fear in love or feeling love for people in the novel. Um, there's a fear of knowledge. And on, on the reason side, there's uh, intellectualism in the likes of Cora and Luke and Spencer. But there's also reason in Will Ransom's faith and also reason and sort of intellectual curiosity that he has because he's a vicar who reads Darwin, which is also un- unconventional. Why is faith versus reason and fear versus reason so fruitful a dichotomy for you? Um, I, I imagine it stems from my own upbringing. Um, I was brought up in a very, very, very strict religious home. Um, so we had no television, no pop music, no trips to the cinema. I had to wear, um, you know, I wasn't allowed to wear trousers. Um, there was no contemporary culture in the house. I uh, read the King James Bible and recited long passages of the King James Bible, memorized it, uh, read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You know, the, my whole upbringing was, was deeply, 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 deeply rooted in a, in a kind of strict Christianity, which you would more associate with the 19th century than with the 20th. So sometimes I joke that I was brought up in 1895. <laughs> I mean, I, I actually rather enjoyed it and my parents are really wonderful people, but it was very idiosyncratic and it was extremely tightly religious. And and the effect of that is that it did not allow for doubt. So one thinks of faith as being something which is a relatively um, sort of soft and nebulous concept, but there is a kind of faith which is um, framed as being knowledge. Mm-hmm. So you would not say, find this a mystery. You would not say that you have doubts because it, it, it would be sort of wrong to admit to that and actually you would say well no I've read what the Bible says and of course I believe it it must be fact and then I gradually came out of not my faith so much as the established church um, in my sort of early to mid-twenties and what it has left me with is this strange obsession 
obsession with where faith ends and irrationality begins mm -hmm. and how much things can be explained away and to what extent that that is absolutely desirable. So there are things in nature, there's a, there's a big optical illusion, as, as you know, in the book, which evokes a sort of sense of the sublime and the wonder. So there's a lot of things in nature that move us beyond our capacity to reason. They move us beyond mere appreciation of beauty into another space, which is more like worship. So we know that a great mountain is not supernatural. We know that an optical illusion is not supernatural, but we don't really experience it as rational beings. We experience it as something else. Mm -hmm. So it's just a kind of central preoccupation of my life, really. How how do I live as a person who has a kind of faith that is so driven by reason and rationality? Um, so to a certain extent, the books are relatively solipsistic in that I'm using them as a means of working out <laughs> where I am and, you know, how I think. Um, but it's very much one of those things where a writer... It's not until you look back at your work that you realise what it is that you've got on your mind. Yeah, and, it, and it's kind of reminiscent of the critic Rudolf Otto's idea of the numinous, too. Exactly. Yeah, and and what that does to thinking about to the, the gothic elements that are that are in this novel, and it, it's maybe a kind of Victorian gothic, but at least how I think about the gothic isn't necessarily primarily to do with something being fearful or, or making you scared, but rather something that comes from a, a depth of emotion, whatever that emotion mm -hmm. is supposed to be. And, exactly. and there are there are deep feelings in this book. There are there are deep emotions in this book, whether whether it is fear of a serpent or whether it is the confusion surrounding surrounding love, friendship, and relationships. Um, so why was feeling so important to sort of bring out in a bunch of variety of ways in this novel? Um, well, you, this is one of the most astute readings of the books I've heard, um, so thank you for that. Well, thank you for, thank you for that, really. <laughs> um, I agree with you that the Gothic is not a question of fear and of horror, but of something else. Um, I'm fascinated by the Gothic, and it was the subject of my PhD thesis, and I could bore on about it for about 48 hours straight, um, but I won't. <laughs> well, I'm happy to listen to it, so we can, we can do it another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so to me, the true Gothic is all about sensation and feeling. So that feeling may be a delicious feeling that you are reading about a transgression which you can hardly admit to yourself that you feel, but here it is in this book and you feel kind of wickedly thrilled. That That's a function of the Gothic. There's another function of the Gothic which is to say, what is it you're afraid of? Mm -hmm. Are you afraid that there is something just behind you that if you turn your head you may catch a glimpse of it? Or are you afraid that you're mad? And which is worse? Um, the Gothic is a feeling of um, a kind of sublime attachment to something that you're a bit bewildered by because you can't fully understand or explain it, but you're swept up in this sort of sublime terror. So um, there's, a, there's a great Gothic novel by Charles Robert Maturin called Melmoth the Wanderer, which mm -hmm. is, is utterly horrifying. And halfway through the book, he says in italics, the narrator says in italics, emotions are my events. Oh, I like that. Event. So, isn't that amazing? Yeah. So, in this book, there's incest, cannibalism, rape, murder, death by fire, just the most horrific things you can think of. But what Maturin is saying, that the real events of the book are emotions. And I found that 
so fascinating and and i've kind of pinned my writing style and my writing aims on that idea that the real events in the book are not the plot twists or you know the the kind of peril or operations or that it's the emotions that the characters are feeling and as a consequence hopefully the emotions of the reader you've really put your finger on what i was trying to do with the book so i'm very pleased with that. thank you i i am very pleased with myself i think for coming up for coming up with that too it makes me feel good as a, as, as a reader <laughs> Cora Seaburn I think is is one of my favorite characters lately um, because she presents a wonderfully new kind of Victorian heroine and I think she's she just totally defies convention the literal unbinding of herself when she you know gets rid of her corset once you know mm-hmm. after her husband's death. She says that she, at one point in the novel, she says that she's freed herself from the obligation to try and be beautiful and was never the more happy for it. Um, She's a woman who likes to go out and tramp around in the mud and get dirty and think and be considered a person in her own right. Um, And so, too, are are women like Martha and even to to some extent, though though a bit differently given, given her illness, Stella Ransom. Why was reimagining what a Victorian woman could be uh, important to you? Oh, sheer fury. I mean, just absolute rage, really. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm furious, really furious, at the silencing of Victorian women, mm-hmm. at how they have been recast. And, and I mean this kind of post the Victorian novel. I really do mean that it's, it's a relatively recent phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've spoken to a couple of historians about this, and there's various theories about, about why it happened. This idea that they never called anybody by their first name, mm-hmm. unless they'd been introduced to them 35 years before, <laughs> and that they were wearing these corsets that were crushing their internal organs, so they kept swooning away onto couches, and were sort of shouted at by their husbands, and, you know, the only way they could possibly divide convention was to be a sex worker, which obviously had its own peril. You know, this is, it's really wrong that this has happened and that people like Eleanor Marks and Annie Besant and the striking match girls at Byington May and Elizabeth Garrett Anderson um, and all of these incredible women that were so vital and so interesting and so funny and so warm have been sort of forgotten about. And it's... One of the things that I found slightly depressing is the occasional response from a reader saying, no Victorian woman would have behaved like that. <laughs> and I just think, you know, you only have to read Far From the Madding Crowd, yeah. which was published in 1874, um, or Middlemarch, mm-hmm. and you read about, you know, Dorothea in Middlemarch was, it, was literally interested in social housing. Yeah. Um, and these women were not presented as being freak shows. They were merely presented as being sort of maybe slightly unusual. Yeah. Um, and so I, I really felt driven by a sense of outrage and restorative justice to create women who were as interesting and funny and sexual and vital and warm and clever as women are now and as they were in the 19th century and as they have always been. I think there's almost this tendency to think that, you know, the First World War happened and suffragettes appeared in 1918 and then that's when modern womanhood began and it's, you know, it's just a fallacy. I'm really outraged, can you tell? I can tell and I and I totally love it because I, one of my uh, concentrations when I was doing my PhD work was the Victorian novel and in particular um, Victorian sensation fiction 
And even in those, like even in, in those types of novels, um, in in uh, Mary Elizabeth Braddon's Lady Audley's Secret or Ellen Woods' East Lynne. I mean, those are supposed to be domestic dramas, but those are also women who display, like you said, maybe it may be sometimes in strange ways, but they display um, an, an agency that is not not sort of not new or not characterized um, yeah. as sort yeah. of a belittling kind of way. Like they, they did absolutely. actually exist and they were being written about. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I went back to a lot of first-person accounts. So, for example, there is an amazing archive of letters written between totally ordinary, nondescript, lower-middle-class women, and I think it was the 1860s. And there's one account where this this woman says, I wanted to go into town, but the train was cancelled, so I decided to walk, and a man stopped and offered me a lift, and I thought about it, but I was on my own, so I decided not to. Mm -hmm. And none of that is couched as being strange. Yeah. you think about it, this is a woman who went out on her own, she wanted to go into London to do some shopping, the train was cancelled, she shrugged and thought, I'll go and walk, a man offered her a lift, she declined because she was on her own. Now, all of that could have happened yesterday. Yeah. Um, and so it, it was a kind of crusading verve on my part, almost, <laughs> to you know, undo some of, the, some of the strange ideas that we have about the Victorian age generally, but obviously speaking as a woman and a feminist, mm -hmm. um, the, the silencing of women in particular. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's, that, it, it was really great, and it's, it was really one of my... One of my favorite parts of this novel was the female characters. Also speaking as a woman and a feminist, um, it was yeah. nice. It was nice to see them represented as viable women who have agency and and do things and accomplish things. Yeah. And we have one final question for you. We asked this question of all of our guests on the podcast. Since this is primarily aimed at uh, university and college professors and their students. Who was your favorite teacher? Who was my favorite teacher? Um, years and years ago, when I was at Chelmsford County High School for Girls, there was a teacher called Mr. Zambellis, and he was fantastically charismatic. He, he probably was only in his early 30s, you know, but when you're sort of 11, you think that's very elderly. <laughs> and he had a love and an ardour for literature, which was absolutely infectious. And I know that everybody who was in my class with him never forgot it. And one of the best days of my life was when it was a punishingly hot day and he drew down the blinds in the classroom and he said, it's too hot to work, I'm going to read you a poem. And he read us Tennyson's The Lotus Eaters. Oh, nice. I could hardly be a more fitting choice for yeah. a room full of schoolgirls when it's 90 degrees in the shade and nobody can think. And it aroused in me this knowledge that I didn't think there was anything more worth doing or a better use of life than writing something which could affect a room full of people like that. And um, I've, I've always wanted to find him and write to him and tell him what he did for me, and, I, and he's sort of disappeared. Oh. <laughs> um, but he, Mr. Zambellis at Chelmsford County High School, he was my favourite teacher. That is a wonderful, wonderful story. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. That's a pleasure. Thank you for being such a, an ideal reader. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for that compliment. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.